Hello, welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where we bring you interesting topics to discuss the business of food, fuel, fiber, and farming, where we talk about stuff that matters to you. We don't bore you with grain charts and weather forecasts. You can get that on your phone. You can get that on AM Ag Radio. Here, we talk about stuff that matters to you. Big picture, business of agriculture. This is part two of my discussion with Jim Dudlasek, editorial director at Progressive Grocer. That's a, you've got a tremendous website if you want to see what's happening in food. He's the editing director there. Mr. Dudlasek and I met in Dallas at a meat conference where I spoke in front of about 500 people. It was the North American Meat Institute that put that on. That's what he does. He goes around the world to meat conferences and produce conferences and grocery store conventions. He's a smart guy. He knows a lot about what's happening in groceries. And let's face it, that's our business here in the business of agriculture, providing groceries. So with no further ado, welcome to part two with Jim Dudlasek. Hello, Mr. Dudlasek. Thanks, Damien. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Thanks for being such a great guest and knowing so much about this topic. Last episode, uh, we finished off, we're talking about dairy, and, and you and I both are of the opinion, because we like dairy, and you used to work for, you were the editor for Dairy Foods uh, Magazine. Okay, cheese is probably about leveled off. Fluid milk is going away. It's my understanding the only category within milk that's actually growing was whole milk bumped up because the fear of fat is no longer prevalent because we've, we've proven that that's not an issue. And you talked to me about plant-based. Plant-based protein is kind of harming what's happening in milk. It's kind of harming yogurt. Plant-based protein is in the meat counter. So if you're a grocery store and you're a business-minded person like you are, what's your biggest challenge in selling and marketing meat, milk, and eggs? Well, I think the biggest challenge um, is sort of getting people to, to stick around and linger to see all the options that are there. Um, milk historically, you know, it's, it's no secret that it was always a loss leader. Um, you know, people come in, it's something they need all the time. Um, well, that's kind of tapering off because there's all these other options now. Um, the dairy department, I mean, it's, it's grown in product numbers. It, not, it hasn't necessarily grown in size. So you go there and you're faced with all these different options. Um, on the actual genuine dairy side, you see all, almost every yogurt available is Greek. Um, there's some smaller selections of, of traditional, more traditional yogurts. You have Australian style, Icelandic style. Uh, it's just a, you know, a, a bewildering array. And to get folks to kind of, you know, stop and look and see what's there. Um, and the, 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 the transformation has just been, has, has just been amazing. Um, you know, all the, all the plant-based stuff is coming in. And I think that, you know, when some of these products first came out, the, the inclination of grocers was to, you know, segregate them into whatever they wanted to call it, the, the organic department, the health food department. Well, you, you really can't do that anymore because, consumers have shown themselves to be much more diversified than they used to be. It's not just someone who, oh, that's the organic shopper. Everybody, the studies and, and, and consumer surveys have shown that practically everybody is dabbling in every category at any given time. And the ones that are not, grocers want to get them to get into those categories because ultimately it means more money in their pocket, more traffic, more sales throughout the store. So, um, you know, they, 
have I strayed too much from the original question? <laughs> no, you haven't, Jim. And by the way, I think this is fascinating. And I want everybody that listens, you know, because we are, after all, the business of agriculture is about making food. And as we pointed out in the, in the first episode, that you've got to always realize we answer to the consumer. And these consumers are spending more money. I tell my, you know, my audiences, this, this specialty stuff is really where the growth is, certainly the growth in profit. And you know, we talk about milk as a dairy farm kid, and I rent my farmland here to a dairy farmer. The dairy people are still, they still sometimes, unfortunately, from the marketing standpoint, think it's 1960. Uh, they still want to know why fluid milk sales aren't going to go up. Well, fluid milk has gone from 47 gallons per American in 1946 after World War II to about 16 gallons today. We're at one third. Those gallons ain't coming back per capita. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not being mean, I'm just telling you the reality of the situation. They, no, you're absolutely right. They think their problem, and you've seen this push, is well, it's because these companies are allowed to call stuff milk that's not really milk. And I, I know, like, no, folks, your problem isn't the definition. Your problem isn't that we can call soy or whatever milk. It's just that the consumer went away and it wasn't because of the name. Your thoughts? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right there because the consumers were, they went away long before all these other products became popular. So the issue was that, you know, it, I, th I think that milk as a commodity, fluid milk was taken for granted. People were always going to buy milk. And before you knew it, they weren't always buying milk. They were buying, you know, other beverages. You know, during that time that fluid milk was going down, what came on the scene? Bottled water. Really? You know, you imagine, you know, 30 years ago, people thought something you can get out of your faucet people are going to pay for. Well, yeah, they are. And look how that sector has expanded now. You have bottled waters. You have functional waters with vitamins in them. You have uh, unsweetened uh, sparkling waters. You have spiked sparkling waters, water with alcohol in it. You know, you've gone from, you know, you know, I drink my bourbon neat, but now people are drinking their, you know, water without any, just booze without any uh, flavor in it. Uh, it you know, it, it, it's crazy the way, uh, the, the way that the beverage category, it's, it's so active and diverse, but yet milk is in the basement of it. My, my old man, I point out, Jim, to my audiences that my old man, the dairy farmer that he was, is turning in his grave because bottled water is more expensive in some convenience stores, grocery stores than, you know, bottled milk. Uh, and in 2016, Americans spent $21 billion on plastic bottles of water, just to put that in perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, so my old man is rolling his grave over that one. But as I point out, he's also rolling in his grave because I own a $50,000 pickup truck. I bought it because of the heated steering wheel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When you talk about the other fresh categories, because in episode one, we talked about the center of the store, where it's boxed, where it's processed, where it's bagged. That's struggling a little bit because the consumer in, in North America wants more fresh. So they're going around and these grocery stores becoming, like you said, grocery rocks. They've got offerings where you can buy food, eat it there. They also, you know, got olive bars, sushi bars. What about produce? What's happening in produce in that fresh category? I know kale is a new big thing. What else? Is, it, is there more variety than there's ever been? I think there is, and uh, organic continues to grow. Uh, local is a huge thing. Most of the grocery stores I, I visit now around the country 
there's huge signage proclaiming local. They have a whole list of, they name the farmers in the towns nearest the store. They, in some cases, they show how many miles from the store that produce came from. Um, uh, some of the stores will even host a couple times a year farmers markets in the parking lot. So people can come out and actually meet the farmers and say, yeah, hey, I'm going to, these are my products that you're going to be buying in my store for the rest of the year. And, and they by can, the way, if farmer, if you're in Chicago and it says local bananas, you're being screwed. Yeah, well, that, that's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they have some, uh, there's some greenhouse projects around the, uh, around Chicago that focus mainly on, you know, lettuce and microgreens and that. But to my knowledge, no one's growing bananas in the inner city. So but the local thing I've, I've pointed out, it's pretty funny that um, what the benefit is, nobody can really say it makes people feel good you know because these tomatoes came from uh 16 miles down the road that's neat uh it makes me feel like i support the local economy but there's obviously no uh there's no rationale being oh well it's better it might not be as good but local is really hot i know what you're talking about i see the signs where it shows a picture of a guy at yuma arizona and says you know it's local yeah, and um, there's uh, there's a continuing interest in in specialty uh, produce, uh, exotic varieties. Um, one thing that you see that it's it's actually a crossover from produce into our discussion before about plant based meats is jackfruit. This is an ugly looking big thing, the size of maybe a volleyball. Runs about forty dollars retail and. People love it. It's got a texture that lends itself well to mimicking barbecued pulled pork. Really? And it's you called can do that yourself, and there are companies that actually make pre-packaged jackfruit that is sauced and packaged so you can put it on a pulled pork sandwich and say, here's my vegan pulled pork sandwich. Oh and it's, it's, very, it's very close in texture, and the taste really is more, you know, in that case from the sauce. And I mean, if it was just, you know, a dry rub or that, I don't think it would, it would pass. Uh, barbecue aficionado as well. But, you know, it's, 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 it's another thing that's, that's profitable for, for produce. And by the way, the grocery stores got to make a, they got to make profit and that's why they're there. They're not, they're not there to tell you what to eat. They're there to provide what you eat. So we need to always remember that, which brings me to, you talked about jackfruit and now you're talking about, you know, substituting it out. We talked about flexitarians uh, in the last episode and I always pick on vegetarians, uh, which of course is not a big deal. As I point out, uh, if you offend a vegetarian, most of them don't have enough strength to throw a punch. Here's a question. We've got plant-based as a, as a growing trend in your uh, observation there at Progressive Grocer. What about clean meat, which is really not meat, it's laboratory produced meat substitute. Is there gonna be a consumer demand to support Petri dish protein 10 years from now? Um, you know what, I think that has a steeper hill to climb than plant-based because you also have a consumer um, suspicion and fear of, um, you know, anything that, you know, is, is loosely dubbed Frankenfood, anything they feel is, you know, genetically processed. I mean, this, I mean, I think there's a direct tie in here with the old attitude about GMOs. And I think there's a huge misunderstanding over most of consumers about GMOs and what they do. 
I think there, I think there's, there's an assumption and I think it's driven largely by, by social media and those folks who, who are, who want to, you know, gin up fear about, about GMOs that, you know, there's a local farmer with a horse drawn plow and then there's Monsanto and nothing in between. (laughs) And, you know, they totally, I think there needs to be more education about what modern agricultural agriculture is and how it helps feeds the world and how it helps feed the world. And without it, not as many people are going to get fed. Anyway, back to your original question about the lab grown meat. I think it has, it, 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 there's some interest, but I think there's that impression that anything that is created in the Petri dish that didn't come from some natural source, it's, you know, I don't know if I'm going to see that show up in a marketable version in my lifetime. It could, um, um, I haven't had an opportunity to try it yet. I think it's still in its, in its infancy. You know, if they want to try and, and create a bone-in ribeye for me in a lab somewhere, I guess I'd be willing to try it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's to, to, to really replicate the flavor, the texture, the marbling of the actual genuine article. I mean, I think that's why Beyond Meat is sticking to grinds and sausages because I can't see them coming up with a cowboy steak made out of plant protein anytime soon. Yeah, no, that's the thing. I, I kind of can get plant-based. Uh, you know, we've had soy burgers for a long time or vegetables that, you know, you try and mimic into some kind of a, a meat, like you said, jackfruit. I see those for the vegetarians, the vegans, and even, as you said, the, the flexitarians that want to go for that. But I don't sure as hell see laboratory-produced meat substitute being uh, a product that's really prevalent 5, 10, even 25 years from now because a consumer base that is so pushing the natural envelope. And, you know, if they're switching off of Cheerios and they're switching off of uh, granola bars because they still deem them to be too processed, what could be any more processed than Petri dish protein? So I agree with you on that. And yeah, so uh, I think it's, it's just, it, it has that sort of, spooky factor that I don't know they're going to be able to overcome. So the future of food, Mr. Dudlasek, the future of food and groceries, at least here in North America, because that's where you and I both live and work. When you look out and you say, okay, here's what the future looks like. You pointed out in our pre-taping that regulatory issues. We've got the Food and Drug Administration. We've got the United States Department of Agriculture. You heard Sonny Perdue, our Secretary of Agriculture, speak at a conference you just attended. What what's the concern on regulation? Well, he he pointed out that right now the the whole regulatory landscape is just very confusing, lots of red tape, very costly because of the way the responsibilities are divided between the USDA, the FDA, over which parts of the food chain they have oversight. You know, I I'm sure you're you're your listeners are well familiar with the USDA. They oversee meat, poultry, and eggs, and the FDA pretty much takes everything else. But because of the way food products are made and the ingredients they contain um, and the innovation that has taken place to make more solution-based products, you end up with multiple agencies trying to figure out, okay, I inspect this part of it, I inspect this part of it, you know, for example, USDA, you're making the sausage. USDA inspects the meat, but the FDA is oversees the casings. 
when it comes to eggs, liquid, frozen, and dehydrated, that's USDA, but shelled eggs are FDA. So um, it, it's, it's, it's a total train wreck. So, um, Secretary Wait, Purdue, you just say that uh, something about the federal government as a total train wreck? I don't think anybody <laughs> listening to the show would ever understand that or agree with that. <laughs> well, Secretary Purdue expressed that he was very committed to, to working with, with growers and the ag sector on trying to figure out a more reasonable solution to make this less onerous for everybody involved. Um, it's, you know, there's so much time involved. There's so much cost involved. And it's just, it's, it's putting undue pressure on everybody along the supply chain. Um, and it's, it's just ridiculous. So, you know, it, in, it inhibits, I think it inhibits innovation to a certain extent. And it's, it's just, um, it, it, it's a distraction from your main reason for doing business, which is to feed people. We generally, I think, have uh, the safest food in the world. Now, there's going to be some people that say, oh, no, Canada has it or England has it or some such thing. But the one thing that I try to always tell our non-ag folks, well, they, they've gotten caught up because they watched Food, Inc. or some you know, alarmist documentary or somebody at yoga uh, told them what they heard on Dr. Oz, and it's just usually complete misinformation. We have the safest food in the history of mankind. We do. I mean, you're, you know, it, it makes a big headline that uh, you know some woman in Texas gets salmonella, or some guy in you know Florida you know, gets a, a dose of E. coli from some cow poop that got on a piece of spinach, and that's tragic. That's bad. It's, but sure. in a country as big as ours, to have as few of those incidents as we do, so we're doing something right, but we're not doing it all the way right. What do you think needs to happen? Does one agency need to be in charge, and then they clean up the code? Yeah, I, I think it needs. I think it needs to be streamlined with multiple agencies and multiple processes. I know that one one agency has regular inspections, another one has them sporadically. They're on different timetables. They have different bureaucracies. You know, it's it's obviously a, a mess. So the the idea of of transparency of traceability is is a huge trend now um, in in the food industry. You have. Um, the Food Marketing Institute and the Grocery Manufacturers Association collaborating on the new smart label system, which is the new, it's a, it's a web-based platform and it's, it's voluntary for the members where they have full disclosure of, of everything in a particular food product. It can be ac accessed on a computer through an app um, by scanning a QR code. Uh, and it has total access to all the ingredients in a product. In particular interest is the free-from ingredients, which are the, the known allergens and other things that people are trying to avoid. Um, another trend now in the food industry is this whole idea of blockchain technology, um, which I have to admit I don't fully understand it, but it is supposed to enhance the idea of food safety for tracking every single point of any sort of change or alteration along the, the the chain from farm to fork, or at least farm to store. Once it leaves the store, someone puts it in the refrigerator and it's 52 degrees, that's outside the food industry's purview, but. Yeah, I, I think that, for, I don't understand blockchain either. Uh, it's, it's a little beyond me. Um, as far as the transparency, I probably, uh, riled up some anti-GMO people or even some ag people a year or so ago over the fight on whether to label stuff. I said, go ahead, label it. Stop fighting it. Label, 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 label. Because I don't think the American consumer 
or maybe the Canadian consumer, really reads the label after a while. It becomes ubiquitous. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff on a food label that after a while, you, don't, you just don't see it. You don't look past it. What's your thought? Is, it, is the consumer more label-oriented than they've ever been or less? Uh, I think they're more just because there's a heightened interest about what's in food. Um, I think most of their attention is on the nutrition facts because they're looking for calories. They're looking for carbs, sugars, um, sodium levels, uh, fat, not as much, but still that's, that's an interest. Uh, I mean, I think that there are, uh, there's, there's definitely uh, a segment of, of consumers who are, have a keen interest in things that are certified non-GMO, but again, um, I think that that whole idea of GMOs is not fully understood. I mean, yeah, I, but you know, I think that I think Jim, that it looks like to me four years ago this was a hot, hot, hot potato, and it seems to have waned. I think like everything, the consumer eventually gets worn out with something and just moves on. I don't see the uh, GMO food uh, debate or resistance being as great as it was just a few years ago. I, I think now, and I and I see this when I go to the natural product shows. Um, I think that the labeling is there, but I, like you say, I don't hear the clamor about it anymore. It's almost reached like a ubiquity where, you know, a few years ago, gluten-free was, you go in there, oh, I'm gluten-free, everything's gluten-free, gluten-free, gluten-free. Now it's like, if you're gluten-free, fine, it's on there. Now it's like, oh, non-GMO, well, it's on there. I think that, I don't know if it's a lull and it's going to pick up again, but it's definitely not at the same volume as it was a year or so. Perfect. Not at, not at the same volume a few years ago. All right. The big question and, and our listeners are saying, all right, this guy's a grocery expert. And in, in case you forgot, as Jim Douglas said, he's editor with the Progressive Grocer. Great information. And he goes to all these food shows. And he obviously covers what happens at the grocery store. So the big question, is Amazon going to eliminate grocery stores? I say no. Absolutely not. And because if it was, they wouldn't have bought Whole Foods. And they wouldn't have be opening their own physical stores um, they have this Amazon Go store in Seattle. I just saw earlier this week that they plan to open another one in Seattle. They have plans to open them in Chicago and a couple other cities. So they recognize the value of the physical store. The consumer insights research that I've seen said people still want a physical store. Um, so what the grocery industry is doing is moving toward the idea of a um, seamless experience whereby, and I think Meyer has expressed it best, the great um, superstore chain out of, out of the Midwest, whereas they don't see it as having brick and mortar sales and online sales. They have a store that has many different entrances. One of those entrances is to a physical store. One of those is through an app. One of those is through a computer. And the idea is to make it, is to make it as seamless as possible. So whether people want to come into the store, whether they want to have something delivered, whether they want to click and collect and come to the starter on their computer and come and, and pick it up, that they have the same experience wherever that is. Now, for the in-store experience, something that Amazon, and I think to a certain extent, Amazon is still wrestling with what they call the last mile. They can deliver a lot of stuff, but delivering those fresh things has a little bit more behind it than just dropping a, a pallet or a box on someone's front step. And you've seen them sort of retreat in some of those markets that they've been delivering fresh in to sort of regroup and say, hey, maybe we're not doing this quite right. And they're trying to leverage what they've acquired through Whole Foods to kind of kind of master that. In the meantime, you have grocery stores um, 
Kroger and, and chief among the players who are taking this time as Amazon moves in to say, all right, we're going to invest in all these things. We're going to invest in online. We're going to invest in delivery. We're going to invest in meal kits. We're going to invest in click and collect in uh, consumer insights because we want to be on top of, of everything in here. And meanwhile, we also want to give people who come to the store a reason to keep coming into the store. So they have to create a good experience to come in and whether that's um, sampling, cooking demonstrations, tastings. Uh, there's a great regional chain out of the Carolinas called Lowe's Foods. They have a store in uh, one of their stores in South Carolina has a microbrewery in the store. Now, you know, Amazon can't provide that. Um, you go in, you can have a beer, uh, you can, you know, they'll do a flight for you. And that's just one of the things they have in this particular store. All that's kinds my kind of, of store. That's my kind of store right there. If you, if you want me to hang around, give me beer. You know what? They should do that. <laughs> Clothing retailers, they should do that everywhere. If you want Damian Mason to be one of your customers, put beer in the place. <laughs> um, all right. Got a lot of knowledge and you obviously know a lot about the groceries. What are the people out here who grow, process, package, my listeners that are workers in the business of agriculture? From your perspective, what do they need to know? Well, I think that they should, they should be aware that, you know, I think everybody across the whole food industry, whether you're on the ag side or the retail side or the manufacturing side, everybody's on the same side because the goal ultimately is to sell more food to more people. So, there is a growing um, opinion that all players among this whole spectrum need to have a greater degree of collaboration, working together to better move these products along the chain and get them into people's mouths. Uh, for a long time, and this is uh, not as familiar with how it might work on the ag side, but I know between CPG manufacturers and retailers, it was always we have our information and we have our information and I'm not showing you what I got and you're not showing me what you got. And every, they're each telling each other, well, this is the way you ought to, this is how your planogram ought to look. Well, no, that's how, not how my people want to shop. Everybody needs to be transparent to each other and have greater channels of communication to say, okay, we're going to work together and figure out how together we can better serve consumers who are coming into stores because it's a, it's a whole new era. There's, you know, there's no, there's much less room for error. Um, you know, nobody historically in grocery, nobody wants to stick their neck out to try anything new. They're going to wait till the other guy does it. If it works, they'll imitate it. But now you have grocers that need to act a little less like a grocer and a little more like Google and say, okay, let's try this. If it doesn't work, eh, okay, we'll try something else because that's how all the disruptors are doing it. If you're not constantly innovating, then somebody else is going to disrupt you out of business. There's really no time to waste anymore. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I make big points about this with my, uh, my clientele that, you know, you, you got to reinvent. And when you reinvent, uh, it doesn't mean you just are copying. When you copy the, the guy or gal down the road, that means you know what worked yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to experiment with new stuff. And I try and tell these folks, listen, if McDonald's wasn't afraid to change the quarter pounder, for God's sakes, they changed the quarter pounder. Coca-Cola changed Coke. These things don't kill these companies. So if McDonald's and Coke were willing to change, you could probably change and try something new too. 
So what should we in the business of agriculture, you got one last thought, one more, one more big idea, because one I want to make sure you give my listeners the opinion on. I try and tell the people in agriculture every chance I get, stop thinking it's all about price. For a few people, it's all about price. But for the richest country on earth, it's not about price. When it comes to groceries, how important is price? Uh, well, as you say, for a certain segment, it is very important because if it wasn't, you wouldn't see the incredible success of Aldi and Lidl, its competitor in Germany, wouldn't see fit to come over to the United States and try and take it on. It's sort of getting started in some fits and starts in the Southeast, which is an incredibly overstored area. So they really had a, a challenge moving in there. But yeah, that segment, particularly when the economy is low, the hard discount segment does really well. So price is very important to people. But people also are willing to pay for things that they want if it provides them a solution, if it provides them a convenience, if it allows them to save time, eat better, eat healthier, more wholesomely, better quality. Yes. So what everybody involved, ag on up, should be always focused on is this is, a, this is a business about the consumer and what they want and they're willing to pay. So figure out what problem they have that nobody else is solving and solve it. That's fantastic. All right. Jim Dudlasek, Progressive Grocer Editorial Director, smart guy. Met him a year ago at a meet conference. I knew he'd be good for you to listen to. Closing thought or lesson or idea that you want to close out that anybody in the business of agriculture can benefit from? Uh, just like I said, remember it's about the consumer and you can't go wrong. The consumer is king. Figure out what they want and, and do it. That's fantastic. You've been listening to part two of Going to the Grocery Store with Progressive Grocer Editorial Director Jim Dudlasek. I appreciate you being a listener to the Business of Agriculture podcast. Please join me next time. Till then, I'm Damian Mason. See you.